Todd said, my name is Joe Paglia. Uh, you may recognize that name. I was, my wife and I, Amy, were um, part of your Advent giving project uh, over Christmas time, and we want to thank you for that gift. Amy and I serve in full-time missions with Leadership Resources International. Our office is based in Palos Heights. If you want to stop by sometime, feel free. I won't be there. Um, I uh, generally work out of my house uh, most days of the week. I uh, get into the office on Thursdays, usually, because um, that's kind of a big meeting day, staff devotions, staff time in prayer, that sort of thing. But otherwise, uh, most of our guys work remotely. We're an or a global missions organization that doesn't have anyone on the field. Um, all of our guys live here in the United States, are based here, and they fly in and out of different countries around the world to do pastoral training. But the Pastoral training isn't the heart of what we do. The heart of what we do lies in our mission, and that's the mission, or that's our vision, I should say, for our for the Church of Jesus Christ. And our vision goes something like this: to see the Word of God flow mightily, flow mightily, flow powerfully through the church to the nations. And so the idea there is seeing the Word of God flow through every church in the world to every nation in the world. Now that, that for me is a beautiful vision of the church. That I think is what Christ had in mind in the uh, opening uh, chapter of the book of Acts when he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the other ends of the earth. We witness by telling. We witness by sharing. We, we, we witness by preaching and proclaiming the word of God powerfully. And so um, that's what we do. But if you're going to serve the church, if you're going to change the church, you need to change the pastor. And so we go after the pastors. So right now at Leadership Resources, we're working in something like 27 different countries around the world. Um, we are running somewhere around 100 different pastoral training groups uh, at any given time. When I started with Leadership Resources about seven years ago, we... Uh, we're working in 21 groups. So God has grown us five-fold, really, uh, over the last seven years. And what's so amazing about this is we have not added a single staff member in our training department. Instead, what we've done is we've been able to raise up indigenous leaders all around the world who then take the training, take ownership of it, and are training others themselves. So we raised up a training team, and let me just give you an example from Ethiopia. Um, we went in and we did two different training groups in Ethiopia. I was a part of the first ones that went in, and it was a fantastic opportunity. And in Ethiopia, we trained somewhere in the ballpark of 35 to 40 pastors. Among those 40 pastors, we found eight guys who just had, the, had great heart for the Lord, had incredible character, that above reproach sense um, and they also had some capacity for expansion. These guys had room to grow in terms of their abilities, in terms of their gifts. And so we took them and began to do some adva advanced training with them, not only teaching them to continue to handle the word of God, that's our, our primary pursuit, but also began to, to deepen them in their ability to lead groups, to train other pastors, to, to continue to train guys to handle the word. We trained in two groups. They're training in 21 groups in Ethiopia. So what we talk about is we talk about seeing a movement of the word happen. 
Um, we can't do that. That's totally God's work. But we just, see, we just seek to launch it. And we launched it with those eight men. And they are now running 21 groups. Each of those 20 room, 21 groups have something like 12 to 15 pastors in there. So if you're doing the math real quickly in your head, it's something like 250 pastors that they're working with right now. We trained 30. And really, we only trained eight. Um, but they're training 250. Now the kicker is, is each of those 250 pastors is responsible to be training others. And so each of those guys is held accountable to train five others. So we're talking about now 750 more. So we're talking about 1,000 pastors in Ethiopia being trained to handle the word of God faithfully and rightly. That's what Leadership Resources does. And we're in 27 different countries. Um, and we have opportunities to go into about another 25 right now. And we're trying to figure out how in the world we'll ever be able to do that, um, given that we haven't added a staff trainer in about five years. So this is the exciting work that God has us a part of. It's the exciting work that I get to be a part of on a daily basis, although I can honestly tell you on a daily basis it's not quite that exciting. Um, there are hard days and there are frustrating days. Um, but then you remember what God is doing around the world and you just put your uh, shoulder back down and keep working. And so it's a glorious work that God is doing. So this morning, it's a privilege for me to then be here because this is what I, I get to do. I work all week to help train pastors to preach and to teach. And so this morning, I get to actually be out and, and preaching and teaching. And as you probably know, this is Associate Pastor or Guest Pastor Sunday. It's the week after Easter. So the pastors have preached multiple times during Holy Week, and they call in the substitute. Um, they call in the B team for, week, for the week after Easter. It's the same with the week after Christmas. Um, that's when they call in their replacement. So, but it is a privilege for me to be here. And um, just a couple of things as, we, as we're going to be looking at John 15. Um, there's kind of two parts to this, as I want to think about it by way of introduction. Is The first one is this. So Easter is over. Now what? Right? We had this great celebration. Last week is filled with all these events. Monday, Thursday, maybe you celebrated. Maybe you celebrated Good Friday. You've got Easter Sunday. It's exciting. It's a big, triumphant um, day, the Resurrection Sunday. And then Monday comes, and you're back to your normal life. So what now? It's been a week since Easter. What now? More closely tied to our text, then, is this question. What do you call, this is not a joke, this is an actual question, but it sounds like I'm starting with a joke. I'm not. What do you call a branch that is no longer connected to the tree or bush or vine? Dead. Dead. It's a stick, right? That's exactly what it is. And if you remember that, you will get to the heart of the passage of John 15 very quickly because that's the point of it, right? All right. We're going to see that in a bit. Let me pray, and then we'll read John 15 together, and then we'll dive into this text more deeply. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time to be here, to worship in this place, to worship with one another, Father God, most importantly, to worship with you and to worship you. Father God, to join the voices of the ages 
as we sing of your glory, as we sing of your might, as we sing of your holiness, as we sing of the sacrifice of your son and the cleansing work that his blood does for our sins. Father God, we praise you. We praise you for all of that. But Father, it's not enough to simply praise you for what you have done, what you're doing, what you will one day do. It's not enough to praise you just on a Sunday morning for an hour, an hour and a half. Father, our entire lives must be given in praise to you. And so, Father, as we turn to John 15, as we turn to your word this morning, the word of your Son, we pray that you would just put a burden upon our hearts to remain in you, to abide in you, to follow in the footsteps of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This we pray, O Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's read John 15 together. Christ said, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As we move into this, into the study of this passage, it's important that we we remember the context. And I I find it so interesting, having just celebrated Easter last week, we're going to take a step back to a time that was right before. Easter, right before, in fact, the crucifixion. And I think it's such a powerful passage in light of that question of what now after Easter, because right before Christ goes away, Christ leaves them with one of these incredible declarations, one of these incredible teachings about what their life is then going to be like after his resurrection and ultimately his ascension. He leaves them with what they need before he goes. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, If you remember the context of this passage, because the context is really important. If you remember the context, Jesus and disciples have just been up in the upper room. They've celebrated Passover together, but it's a Passover like none none other that they had ever celebrated. Christ, in a sense, transforms this Passover. You remember the words that he says to them? This is from Matthew now. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This wasn't Passover like they had celebrated now before. This is a new Passover. This is Christ as a sacrificial lamb about to be slain for their sins in a way that no other animal sacrifice could do. But the Son of God was about to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of their sins. And so Jesus transforms this. And so that probably had these guys thinking, but other things are happening in that room too. This is when Judas is called out as the traitor and he flees into the night. This is when Peter vows that he will devote his life and he would die, right, for the sake of Christ. And Christ says, before this night is over, before the morning sun comes, you will deny me. You won't die for me. You will deny me. And no, no, Lord, never. So it's in the midst of all of this that we have this then declaration that Christ gives and is, is basically saying to them, I'm about to die. The time has come for me to be sacrificed. So here we are then. Jesus, the man that the disciples had given their lives to for the last three years, was heading to his death. What's more, as I said, Jesus has been exposed as a traitor. Peter's told that he's going to deny the Christ. And then Jesus leads them out of the upper room. And here I want to pick up the story. And this is, this is someone else writing. This comes from a little book called Secrets of the Vine by Bruce Wilkerson. And he just has a way of summing up and, and putting us into the situation, into the story. He writes, 11 dejected men follow Jesus down the stairs and out into the cool night air. Some of the disciples carry lamps or burning torches to light their way. Perhaps Jesus tells them where he's heading, to the garden on the Mount of Olives, where they often had spent time. Perhaps they already know. But I believe that as their footsteps echo through the narrow streets, not a word is spoken. The disciples follow Jesus down the hill through the winding streets of Jerusalem, Avoiding the Temple Mount and its noisy, celebrating crowds, Jesus turns right and leads them out of the city, and then, turns, and then they turn sharply left to follow the Kidron Valley up toward their destination. Along the terraces that follow the curve of the valley, and you can just picture this in your mind, along the, curves, along the terraces that follow the curve of the valley, they pass through ancient vineyards. They walk in single file between rows of neatly tended grapes, plants that have been bearing fruit for generations. To the left above them towers the city walls and ramparts of the temple. Ahead and to the right rises the Mount of Olives where Gethsemane and betrayal await. Here, Jesus stops. Hemmed in by rows of vines, the disciples gather around him. Lamps and torches sputter in the night air and flicker in their eyes. Jesus reaches for a grape branch. Showing signs of new spring growth, its woody stem lies across, the hand, across his hand in the golden light. Now he begins, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser kind of helps put it into context, doesn't it? In the beginning, and as Christ begins with these words, he's instructing his followers. He's instructing those men 
standing in the vineyard, he's instructing us now on a wondrous truth of the Christian life. And here's how I would summarize it. A life that glorifies God through the Christ-like spiritual fruit it produces is a life that overflows with joy. Let me say that one more time. A life that glorifies God through the Christ-like spiritual fruit that it produces is a life that will overflow with God-given joy. As he often did, Jesus used situations or descriptions from everyday life in ancient Israel to communicate divine and eternal truths. The imagery of the vine and the branches is no different. And we're going to talk a bit about Christ as the vine in a few minutes. But right now I want to start with the vine dresser. If you look at verse 2, Jesus tells us that the vine dresser does two things. He does two things. First, he cuts away any non-fruit-bearing growth that's on the plant. And second, he prunes those branches that are producing fruit so that they increase the amount of fruit that they produce. When you consider the two things that the vine dresser does, you can tell that there's really only one thing in mind that the vine dresser has as his purpose. More fruit. Anything that hinders fruit bearing, he gets rid of. So he trims off the dead stuff that isn't producing fruit and he prunes the life-giving and the fruit-bearing branches so that they produce more fruit. That's his only purpose. That's his role as the vine dresser. Now for, you, for those of you who may garden or have fruit trees in your yard or something like that, you understand what's going on here. Sometimes plants, and in this case vines, will produce so many new branches, so many new sprouts that they detract from the branches that actually produce fruit. The new growth then hampers the purpose of the bush or the tree or the vine. The new growth takes up so much nutrients, so much of the resources of the plant, so much of its energy that it stops or hinders the harvest. So you got to cut those off as soon as you see them. In doing so, it redirects the nutrients and the energy and the food into the fruit-bearing branches. This is what the vine dresser is doing. As Christians, we have the exact same purpose, to produce fruit, spiritual fruit, spiritual fruit that glorifies God. Look down at verse 8. Jesus says this very clearly for us. By this, my Father is glorified. You bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is how we bear, or this is how we glorify God. As we live lives that emulate and imitate Jesus Christ, we bear spiritual fruit. We bear it in our lives, the fruit of Christ-likeness. And it is through such fruit, then, that we glorify God and fulfill our purpose. And let's just, let's just pause here and consider what I just said. Because what we're talking about is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, serves as the vine dresser for your lives, for my life. It's not just some God. It's not just some guy. This is God Almighty, the one who created all things, who set the stars into their place, who are in control of the sun and the moon. It's he who serves as the vine dresser. 
Because again, Christ is the vine. Christ isn't the vine dresser. Christ is the vine. God himself, the father of all, serves as the vine dresser. He's the one that prunes us. He's the, ones that cut, he's the one that's cutting off the dead wood. He's the ones that cutting off the little sprouts that suck the energy. Everything he does in our lives has a purpose, and that is to produce more Christ-like fruit in us and through us and for us, and ultimately for his glory. That's what God is doing. Now, most of us say, yes, I love this idea. This is fantastic. <laughs> it's hard. Pruning. Cutting, sawing. Because we all love it when those times when we feel so wonderfully blessed and things are going well and it's good and we say, yes, God, the vine dresser is at work. Amen. Christ-like fruit. But what happens when we're on this side of the life and the days are dark and stormy? Maybe you're standing at the edge of that precipice in your life and you're looking over and going, I don't know what else could happen to me right now. I don't know what else there is in this life. I don't know how worse it could get. I don't know how much more I can take. Are you still going, hey, praise God, the vine dresser's at work? We don't often think about it here, and yet this is often when God does his deepest work. Sometimes you have to cut back those vines so much where you think it might kill them, only to see a harvest like you've never seen before. And so whether it's those good and bright and sunny, beautiful days of your life or whether it is the dark and stormy gales of life, know that the vine dresser, the father, is at work. And the, the purpose is the same, to produce fruit, Christ-like fruit in you. His purpose never changes. He's the vine dresser. That's his role. That's his purpose. Now, friends, the reality is we could just stop and spend the rest of our morning just contemplating this point. But the kicker is, is that's not the key part of this text. That's not the key part of the text. That's a secondary point of this text, that God Almighty is the vine dresser. That's a secondary point. If you can really say anything of God himself is secondary without being blasphemous or spouting heresy. But that's the second point, and so we need to move on, and it's time to look at Christ as the vine. Here again, Jesus is using just a common thing. They're walking through vineyards. They're walking by trellises, and the vines weave their way across them. And he stops, and he begins to talk to them. And his first words are, I am the vine. And it seems like such a simple phrase, such a simple analogy. I am the true vine, and you are my branches. But Christ is doing something far more eternal and transcendent here. Because throughout the course of the Gospel of John, there are, have been a number of statements that John seeks to spend extra time on and highlight. And they are all these I am statements. Anyone recognize that language? The I am? Now, I think you've been doing a study in Exodus for like seven years. <laughs> so you should recognize that. This is out of Exodus 3 and 4 in the calling of Moses, right? Christ didn't use this on accident. 
he, in fact, in the Greek, he actually doubles up in his language in order to make his point about what he's saying because he's using the name of God here. This wasn't a title for God. You remember the story of Moses and the burning bush, right? This is where God is going to call Moses to lead the people out of their slavery, out from under the oppression of the Egyptians. He was going to deliver them. He was going to save them. I have heard the crying of my people, and I have come to rescue them. And Moses says, fantastic, Lord, I'm all for it. God says, I've chosen you to lead them. He says, no way. (laughs) Moses was not exactly the most dynamic leader at the front end. Moses grows into the role as he goes on. You remember that section? He gives God just about every excuse he can come up with. I was waiting for him to say, like, I've got a hangnail. I've got a broken eyelash. I can't do it. I mean, he gives every reason in the book to try to get out of this to the point where God's anger is actually kindled against him because he's so reluctant, so hesitant. But in that, in, that, in that discussion, Moses says, how will the people believe me? Who, will, who can I say sent me? And God tells them, tell them I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh sent you. I am or I am who I am sent you. Even the, even the word God is a title. Do you know that? It's Elohim in Hebrew. It means mighty or powerful. The word God is a title. The word Yahweh is a name. And that's where God reveals it. It's his covenant name. It's his faithful name. It's the name that he reserves for the relationship with his people. And so here Christ in the Gospel of John has made all of these I am statements. Right? I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the uh, resurrection in the life. I am the light. I, he also says, I am the gate in one of them. I am the vine. And so this isn't just an analogy. This is a transcendent analogy. This is an analogy where he is claiming to be God himself. This is one of those divinity statements that, can, that has to be understood if you're really going to grasp the significance what Christ is teaching us this morning. This is the divine Son of God, eternal, transcendent, omnipresent, omnipotent, and incarnate, saying, I am the true vine, and you are my branches. In doing so, he's saying, I am your life. I am your sustenance. There is no other source of life in this world but me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, there is no true life. There is no abundant life. There is no spiritual life. No matter what Oprah says. I am the vine and you are my branches. I think we can go so far to say that there are a great many vines in this world. Places where people go to seek sustenance and and seek fulfillment and seek their self-worth, other such things. But there's only one true vine. We follow and we are attached to one that is not of this world. Our vine is supernatural. 
Our vine is divine. Our vine is Christ. None other than the fully divine Son of God who is here offering himself to us and saying, I am yours and you are mine. The passage that, that jumps into my mind as I think about this and, and Christ's calling here is out of Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul describes those who do not know Christ as being dead in their sins and their trespasses. He goes on to say, but God, one of the most important contrastive conjunctions in all of Scripture right there, dead in your sins and your trespasses, trespasses, but God, thankfully, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. He doesn't just make us alive, he makes us alive together in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, Christ There is no other place. I am the vine. You are my branches. Jesus Christ is the one and only source of life, spiritual life. And this is true not only in that moment of salvation. This is key. Not only in the moment of salvation, what theologians call regeneration. But it's true for the entire life of sanctification as well. It's not just in the moment. It's for eternity. And friends, this doesn't stop after we die because we will continue to be the branches because we continue to be the vine. He will be our eternal sustenance, a never-ending source of sustenance and life. And as we're about to see, joy. This is our calling. This is the answer to what's next. What comes after Easter? It's life, eternal life. But it's a life that must come from Christ and no other source. This is why the majority of our passage rests on the only command that's here, which is to abide. I said the vine dresser was a secondary theme. It is. Because abide is the primary theme. It's a life that abides in Christ. That's the key to this passage. A life that dwells with Christ. A life that stays connected to Christ. A life that is a result of that connection, as a result of abiding and dwelling. A life that will produce fruit. If we do not abide in him, if we as the branches become cracked, broken, then it will simply wither. We will simply wither and die over time. A branch that is no longer connected to the vine is nothing but a stick and useful for kindling for a fire. As we consider then this call to abide to Christ, we notice that he does not delve into a lot of details. Do you notice that? Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. But he doesn't then give you like a shopping list of 47 ways to abide. But he does give us a couple. Verses 9 and 10, we see the heart of it. 
And it all boils down to this, love and obedience. If you're hoping for something more mystical or magical, if you're hoping for something easy or effortless, you've come to the wrong place this morning because Christ says, love me and obey me and thus abide in me. Jesus makes it simple. The, truth and faith, the true and faithful Christian life is marked by a deep and passionate, devoted love for Jesus Christ that leads to a life lived in obedience to Him and His commands. That's it. That's it. If you want to abide in Christ, if you want to remain in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, then love Him and obey Him. How easy is it for me to say that this morning? And as soon as I walk out from behind this pulpit, it becomes hard. It is so easy to say that, right? Love and obey and I abide. Fantastic. And yet it's the hardest thing we'll ever do in our lives. Because everything else in this world pulls us towards it. Everything else in this world demands that we love it more than we love Christ. Everything else in this world, including ourselves, demands that we obey our own desires and passions, dreams. Yesterday I watched, I was watching online the um, SeaWorld Shamu show with my almost two-year-old daughter. Um, we're not taking her to SeaWorld, but she can at least watch the whales online. She loved it. The whole, the whole theme of it was dream. And it was kind of this ethereal idea of just following your dreams. And of course, lots of ecological stewardship in there and all of this other kind of stuff. But follow your dream. That's the most important part of your life. Thankfully, she doesn't understand that. She just liked the whales when they jump and spit water and flap their tails and splash the crowds. But that's what the world tells us. Everywhere we turn, follow your dream. Whatever is inside of you is what you should pursue. What the world doesn't understand, what is inside you is dark and black and sin. Because that is the nature of man outside of Christ. And we still have the legacy even after Christ. And we with it and we struggle with it. And so to say simply, hey, love and obey. And yet, it really is all Christ puts upon us. Love me, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Sacrifice yourself and lovingly and obediently follow me. as is true with any meaningful and loving relationship, whether we're talking about a relationship or whether we're talking about a husband and wife's relationship, a father and his daughters, whoever we're talking about, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes devotion. It takes passion. And that's all Christ is saying. Abide in me. Love me. And obey me. And our relationship will be as if you were a branch tied into my vine and you will always have what you need to produce fruit in your life. 
Now, this is often where people stop when they preach this passage. And I don't know why. I get it because abide in me is the thrust, right? That's the kicker. You woo, focus on that point. But somehow we stop short of the very end of what I read this morning, verse 11. We, we stop short of the promise of joy that Christ gives, that comes as a result of abiding, as a result of loving and obeying. As we work and struggle and strain to love and obey Christ in our lives, friends, there will be joy. Now, I'm not talking about just the fleeting feelings of happiness. Happiness is like a roller coaster, right? Up and down and back and forth, spin you till you almost want to throw up. That's how the world feels sometimes. And yet, in the midst of this, there can be that deep-seated abiding joy that you know comes from Christ. It's not the circumstances and situation of your life that drive you. It's Christ and the joy we have in God and the joy that we have knowing Christ and knowing what He has done and what He is doing. It's the joy of knowing that God is the vine dresser. It's the joy of knowing that of what God will one day do through His Son, that this world is but a temporary resting place. We're just sojourners here. This is not our place. This is not our home. Our home is with Christ in heaven. And one day heaven and earth will become one place. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not just a modicum. I'm not going to just throw a little sweetener in your coffee in the morning. I'm going to pour the whole shaker in. I'm going to give you everything there is. I'm going to fill you with joy. And I know it's still a struggle. Still a struggle to know that, and still a struggle to feel it and experience it, and yet that's the promise. There will be joy in the midst of the sorrow. There will be joy in the midst of the struggle. There will be joy as long as you stay connected to me, as long as you stay in love with me, as long as you continue to obey me, as long as you abide in a relationship with me. There will be joy. The vines of this world promise joy. To produce joy-filled life as does Christ, the one true vine. The world with its many vines promises to produce fruit in us and through us, but none deliver. None are able to produce the fruitful life as does Christ, the one true vine. Therefore, we need to remember this this morning. And this brings us full circle. A life that glorifies God through Christ-like spiritual fruit is a life that will overflow with joy. And this only comes as we abide in the great I Am. So now that Easter has passed, now that Christ has risen and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, we are left to abide. But when we do, there will be joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to get distracted. 
it's so easy for us to lose sight. It's so easy for us to, to forget and be consumed by our lives in this world. But Father, you have called us to something far greater. You have called us and given us the privilege of abiding in a relationship with your Son and through your Son with you. Father God, let us never forget it. Let us never forsake it. Let it always be the primary passion and purpose of our lives. And Father God, may we produce fruit that glorifies you. For that is the vision of Missio Dei. Great glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.